Hello. I am kind of nervous about what this is going to be like. This is the first time that I'm recording anything for the podcast just on my own. Normally I'm chatting to someone else and I'm shuffling around a little bit because I want to get comfy. Okay. I think that's better. So I have been putting off recording this for a few days now. I really want to do this, but it's scary and it's really easy to just avoid something and put it off and feel like there's going to be a time later where it's more perfect or you'll be in the right headspace for it. And I don't think that there is a right headspace for this. So I'm just going to dive in and see how it feels. I'm Ruby Rare. I'm a sex educator and author, and this is In Touch, a documentary series offering an intimate and playful education around the different ways that we connect to sex, relationships, and our bodies. Please be aware that this episode contains discussions of sexual violence, child abuse, and domestic abuse. I'll be speaking with fellow survivors about the realities of being a survivor, healing, and intimacy. Please be kind to yourself while listening and only continue if you're able to. If you're looking for any support, there are resources and helplines in the episode description. You are not alone. A few weeks ago, I sat down by myself with a microphone and I just spoke. You'll hear more of that unscripted audio diary weaved throughout this episode. I'll also be speaking to two other survivors, as well as Amy Roach from Gallup, a charity supporting LGBT plus people who've experienced abuse and violence. We'll be unpacking the realities of processing abuse, as well as how we move forward in our lives, work, relationships and sex lives. We'll also be speaking about triggers, healing and intimacy with a lot of raw emotion. These topics are really important, but if you're not in the place to hear this right now, please don't push yourself into listening. This episode will be here if and when you're ready. These are just a few stories out of millions from across history and the world. All of our experiences differ, but we are all united. In the seven or eight years that I have seen myself as a survivor of various forms of sexual violence, I've really struggled to find places where this is spoken about honestly and where I feel safe enough to be raw and messy and really show my pain. This is a space to focus on survivors. Other conversations do need to be had about perpetrators of sexual violence and prevention, but here we're going to be discussing the reality of the aftermath of experiencing sexual violence. It's also worth noting the language we're using here. I choose to think of myself as a survivor rather than a victim of sexual assault. But I have to acknowledge the countless people who haven't survived violence of this nature. I don't feel lucky in this part of my life, but I am one of the lucky ones to be here and to tell my story. It's a really like bright but incredibly cold day here today. And this year marks five years since I was raped 
I wish that healing was linear. I wish that you could like just build it up over time and it would be like getting to a new level on a game and you would just progress to another stage and it doesn't work like that. It doesn't heal in a way that makes sense and you can be fine for months or years and then all of a sudden it's back at the forefront of your mind and it just feels like all the work you've done runs away for a bit. I'm so much more protective over myself and this part of me than I once was. I am incredibly careful about how and when I talk about surviving sexual assault. And I think this podcast episode is a way of doing that in a really measured, controlled way. Because I am in charge. In late 2021, the Office for National Statistics said recorded sexual offences had increased by 8% in England and Wales. The number of rape offences in the year ending June 2021 was the highest ever recorded annual figure to date. And this is just what's being reported. The people that I work with at Gallup are amazing and the work they do is so unbelievably important. Amy Roach is the Director of Services and Deputy CEO at Gallup, the national LGBT plus anti-abuse and violence charity. Because the majority of sexual violence is perpetrated by men, so often sexual assault is seen in a very heteronormative way. So I really wanted to look at this from a queer perspective. We'll be discussing reporting to the police, going through the criminal justice system as a survivor and feeling believed. We work across the country delivering support to all LGBT plus survivors of any type of abuse and violence. Most survivors don't report the sexual violence they've been subjected to. They don't go to the police, they don't access services through that way. And so actually making sure that LGBT plus people know we're there and know that they can get support and they can do that without having to report to the police, without having to disclose it to other people is really, really important. I think there's some misconceptions that you can only get support if you're reporting to the police. And for us at Gallup, that's absolutely not true. One of the things I know very little about is actually how often the police are involved with this kind of thing, because genuinely, like going to the police was never even an option in my mind. And when someone asked me if I would want to, it really startled me because my instinct was just like, that sounds really complicated and stressful. I worry about being believed. So when people do go to the police, what does that look like? At Gallup, we would never encourage people to report. We would never kind of push people to do that in any way. But equally, it is everybody's right to actually be able to report to the police and to get a good response when they do that. And so it's about balancing that for us. It isn't an easy process going through the criminal justice system as a survivor. And we know that the likelihood of somebody actually kind of getting the outcome they want of that is really low. The number of cases that are reported to the police are tiny proportion of the sexual violence that is experienced in this country every year. And we know that very few of those will get to court and even fewer of those will actually end up in a conviction. The criminal justice system is not meeting the needs of survivors at the moment. I think so many of us have like heard stories about how dreadful it can be. But then it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that when you just expect a terrible service 
that doesn't advocate for you that feels scary and threatening and so everyone collectively is just so much less likely to go in and do it which in turn makes the criminal justice system less good at dealing with this stuff if they're not engaging with it as often so it's like a constant cycle when you are subjected to sexual violence the priority and your priority should be about doing what is right for you and having control over that and for some people engaging with the criminal justice system is a really important part of that process and for other people it's not survivors are not a homogenous group so we know that there are additional barriers for LGBT plus people being able to engage with the criminal justice system, just like there are additional barriers for disabled people, for black and minoritized people, people that are sex workers. There are lots of different barriers that might make it even more difficult for them to be able to report and to go to the police. Only around 5.7% of reported rape cases end up in a conviction for the perpetrator. So when this is the reality, it's no wonder that many survivors just don't see reporting as an option because it feels futile. We are clearly experiencing an epidemic of sexual violence. And yet, how often do we have real conversations about the realities of surviving sexual assault? Having the opportunity to speak to other survivors has been so cathartic. In this next section of the podcast, I'm going to be talking to another survivor and discussing cultural expectations around consent and feelings of blame. So my name is Lily Snatchdragon. My pronouns are she, her, and I am a neo-burlesque drag queen. How would a loved one describe you? Generous, honest, and very trusting sometimes to a fault. When I like realized how many times I've actually been sexually assaulted, I felt really stupid. It's been really slow because I'm still refusing to deal with it in some ways. And it's like all of a sudden, everything I thought I knew about sex or felt about sex or felt about intimacy has like completely gone out the window. I think it was like a lot of things when I realized like all of the assault and stuff. And then it was also a realization about how queer I actually am as well. So it was like a really big mixture of of a lot of things. I was embarrassed, was so embarrassed that I let these things happen. And it wasn't like I let them happen because I know I didn't let them happen. I was taken advantage of. And I think I'm like angry because nobody told me what I was allowed and what I didn't have to do. I'm also like jealous of this generation's knowledge of stuff, you know, and the fact that more things are being discussed. Whereas my mum is a typical Asian woman sex was literally just to satisfy her husband and that's what I was taught that that's all it was and what you wanted never mattered I was like so angry with like all the magazines I read like how to satisfy your man that's what it's always just been about sexual violence doesn't happen in isolation it happens like because of the culture that we're in and I've really struggled with that in the past and I still do of knowing 
that what has happened to me was not my fault. But I froze because I was taught that that's what you do. I think that's the worst bit when you're told that that's what you do or there's an expectation, well, that's what you're there for or that's that's what you should be doing. Freezing is a very legitimate way to respond to danger. And it's instinctively what I have done in moments when I've experienced sexual violence. And yet, I shamed myself for years because of this. Honestly, I'd love to say that this is a thing of the past, but that shame does still creep up on me. Our cultural understanding of consent is completely fucked. Just think about any mainstream rom-com. So often, a character's no is presented as a challenge, an opportunity for the love interest to strive harder to win them over. And while in some spaces we've moved on from the what were you wearing questions, these still have made their mark and implicitly govern the way we judge consent and sexual assault. In so much of my early sexual experiences, my consent wasn't centred. I was read by the world as a straight woman, and as a result of that, I was taught that the biggest part of sex was pleasing the man I was having sex with. It ended up with me putting up with a lot of shit that I didn't want, even in largely consensual sexual encounters. Something I wanted to speak to Lily about was the realities of working as a survivor particularly when parts of your identity or work relate to sex. We're both in slightly different, your performance, burlesque drag is just like so confident, so powerful and like so sex positive and kind of like embodied. And I feel like the way that I present when I'm kind of like doing sex related stuff it's like hey I'm like such a sex positive babe I can do all of this stuff I'm like so ready to have the conversations (laughs) what's that like for you when that's the way that you perform and then behind closed doors there's like loads of this shit that's going on I know that Lily is meant to be this body positive sexual beast and I know that in some ways that's what's expected of me and it is hard I feel like I'm lying to people. And although Lily is me, it's a side of me that I guess I just want people to see or I would like to be without the makeup on. And the truth is, it's not. It's frustrating. But then it's also really nice for those four minutes, five minutes of performance. I truly believe that I am a sex positive, body positive, sexy, beautiful human being. If I'm going to be 100% honest about it, half the time, I don't think I'm attractive. And I don't know whether, like, how much of it has got to do with realising all of, like, the sexual assault stuff. I think it is, because I think I stopped thinking I was attractive since I realised all of that stuff. It's impossible to avoid talking about consent in my line of work. And my relationship to this really varies. A lot of the time, being in a classroom and talking to young people about consent is something I'm able to do. I actually really enjoy it because I see how important it is to have these conversations with young people who are starting to be sexual. In that space, I become educator Ruby and leave survivor Ruby at home. But sometimes somebody's thoughtless remark has brought survivor Ruby back into the room and that feels really scary. And on social media, it's even harder to have that separation because people have sent me DMs where they're disclosing the sexual violence that they've experienced. And although it's important to talk about these things, 
I haven't consented to reading that information. I guess this is an example in itself of how we get consent so wrong in our society. This can leak into our personal lives as well. Because I talk about sex for a living, I think people assume that I have really amazing and uncomplicated sex. And that's absolutely not the case. Connecting to other people and even being intimate with yourself can be tricky as a survivor, either because navigating triggers and intimacy is so hard, or simply because you and your brain are exhausted. I'm not being able to do the things that I like to do because I'm investing too much time in thinking about this one particular thing and I'm not having sex. It's almost like my brain has gone, oh, you could say no. So it's just no to myself, to my partner. It's no. And if it does happen, I sob. It's just like frustrating that I can't even have intimate moments with the person I'm so in love with and so attracted to because it's terrifying. And any time like any forms of intimacy happen, I'm so in my head about it so that I'm not actually present within this wonderful intimate moment that I'm kind of having with like my fiance. But I'm very, very lucky that I have a really wonderful partner who understands and is patient and has been the first partner in my entire life who has asked me if I'm okay, has asked me consent with everything that they do, intimacy-wise. And I feel like a bad partner because I can't give them that thing that I'm told a partner is meant to. <laughs> I have to be incredibly cautious when it comes to opening up sexually. And it's been a lot of work from myself and from my partners to get me to a place where sex can feel like what I want it to feel like, which is fun and playful and exploratory and a place to feel connected. And that's what sex should be for me. That's what I really want it to be. And sometimes I can be there and that's glorious. I bloody love having sex when that's what I'm getting out of it. And other times, and there have been months of this where I've just not been able to connect with it at all, where I've experienced flashbacks in my mind and when I've not been able to switch off at all or get into a sexual space, whether that's on my own or with other people. And that's really frustrating, especially having like the added pressure on myself to be like, oh, but I talk about sex all the time. I'm a sex educator. I should be fine with this. I should just totally get over it. These vivid flashbacks of the night I was raped came out of nowhere last year. It came as such a shock, partly because they hadn't ever happened before, but mostly because through those flashbacks, I was remembering details from that night I'd forgotten or kept locked away until then. If you've not experienced something like that before, it is truly terrifying and destabilising. And initially, I was disappointed with myself. I felt that I'd done all this healing and processing 
only for a new challenge to appear that I had to work through. Andrina Lian is a lived experience speaker, writing workshop facilitator and poet. She's the author of the poetry collection Chard. In this next part of the podcast, we will be mentoring being triggered during sex and specific positions. I'm lucky to live with my partner, Jermaine, who's really motivating, really encouraging. She's just really, really loving. And we've been together for nine years. Being with a woman, I feel like that's been easier for me to not have to think about that. That's totally disconnected from the abuse because it's a woman. However, one of the challenges that I found is that there are certain positions that we can't do. If Jermaine's lying down, I can't sit on top of her and face her because that's the position that my abuser had me in. Jermaine knows this because the first time that happened and we recognised it was a problem, we spoke about it. And luckily, she was really understanding. The relationship that I have now is the longest relationship I've been in. Me being with Jermaine for so long reinforces the fact that you can have love and a loving relationship after abuse. Having a supportive partner is so incredibly helpful as a survivor. However, it's important to note here that this is just the perspective of a few people. If you're the partner of a survivor, their experience, triggers and perspective will be specific to them. The vast majority of survivors are women, and the vast majority of perpetrators are men. But in my experience, it's not useful being that binaried. Anyone can experience or perpetrate sexual violence, and we do many survivors an injustice by assuming that this violence only looks a certain way. It's about holding both of these truths at the same time. Sexual violence is absolutely gendered, and it is a form of gender-based violence. So the vast majority of perpetrators of sexual violence are men and the majority of survivors are women. And I think it's really important that we acknowledge that. But having said that, this doesn't mean that we should be ignoring the experiences of people that don't fit in within that model. If you are somebody who's been subjected to sexual violence and you don't fit within that that model, then it can be even harder for you to acknowledge that what you've experienced is violence and isn't okay. I'd heard some research about how much more likely bi women were to experience sexual violence and was quite taken aback. I wanted to speak to Amy about this and about the myths that are perpetuated about bi people in society. RNA's research from 2018 found that bi women are five times more likely to experience sexual violence from a partner or an ex-partner than their straight peers. There's something around the myths and stereotypes around bi women specifically being kind of greedy and hypersexualized. And I think we see that borne out in how often bi women talk about their experiences of sexual violence and what that looks like. It's really important that when we're talking about LGBT plus people's experiences of sexual violence, we're not just one single community with like one particular experience. You know, our queerness looks really different. I think because I had been told in so many implicit ways that I was promiscuous and hypersexualized and greedy, it altered my ability to recognize 
unsafe situations and it kind of limited my ability to advocate for myself and remove myself from those spaces. That does not mean it was my fault, but like I think that stuff sinks in. Yeah, we don't live in, in a bubble. All of these messages about ourselves impact on who we are and how we think about ourselves, but also then what we can expect as a, as a result of that, that impacts on like what we expect and see within our relationships, but also about what we expect from the outside world as well. What that means so often is we don't necessarily feel that we will be believed or we expect to be blamed. For so many survivors, actually, the thing that they, they need is to be believed. And that feels like a really small thing, but it's actually massive. So, back to healing, which is the reality of how we live with this as part of our history. Although the idea of healing can be really misleading because it's not linear and it's not something that we complete. Looking at this has been the most vulnerable thing I've ever had to do. But within all of that, there is growth and there is hope. Some days it feels less tangible than others, but over the years, I can feel myself becoming more resilient. Andrina has been on this journey for longer than me. And so I really wanted to talk to her about healing, how this looks through the years and the difficulties that continue to be faced. I want to feel hopeful, but it's something that, to be honest, I'm struggling with a little at the moment. My healing process has been a lifelong journey. I don't put time on anything anymore. I don't think, oh, you know, this is taking long or whatever. It takes the time it takes. We put so much pressure on ourselves when it's just unnecessary. Sometimes, Ruby, I feel like I've moved 100 steps forward and then something will happen and it brings me like 200 steps back. I keep coming up with this in this episode because what I, what I really want is to kind of be somewhere in between, like being honest about how fucking horrible and difficult all of this is and at the same time be hopeful and kind and compassionate and encouraging. I'm not finding it very easy. The hope that you're describing, though, Ruby, is the fact that as survivors, we're still here. We're just all trying our best. We're trying our best every day. And I think it's just about knowing that, yes, this is going to be with us for the rest of our lives, yes. But there is life after abuse. Like, we're living it. We're here. We're brave enough to talk about what's happened and inspire other people to talk about their stuff as well like one person said to me one day like why do you call yourself a survivor I said because I have survived where many people haven't it's as simple as that reminder that after abuse there can be joy and lightness and that you know your relationship to trauma changes over time and it doesn't it it doesn't need to be this massive like suitcase full of bricks that you're lugging around with you all the time it does feel like that sometimes but it can also feel like a like smallish stone that's in your pocket 
How are you feeling? I'm feeling okay. It's like it's been actually really nice to go on this conversational journey with you. And I have felt really safe and open. I live by the sea and yesterday it was like really stormy and windy and there were like really like crashing dramatic waves. And I went down to the beach this morning and the sea's like really, really calm today, almost eerily so. And I think I feel a bit like a very calm sea right now. Is there anything that we've not touched on or you've not said that you feel like I need to say, I need this to be said? I mean, I think the main thing is just anybody who's listening that, 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 you know, that is a survivor, I guess, I think is just like definitely remind yourself that it's you going through a healing process and as, as much as frustrating it is, you're, you, you know, you're doing the right thing by trying to like heal, whether you go to therapy or just talk about it with people. The main thing is just to talk about it. Talking to other survivors has been a really important part of my journey. And for anyone listening who isn't a survivor, it's so vital for you to hear these emotions. But these are just a few stories. Healing is unique and can be done in so many different ways. Everyone's path is going to look a little different, and that's okay. I chose to speak about these experiences publicly, and while I don't regret it, that hasn't been easy. Please don't think that any of your process needs to be public. There is just as much power in sitting quietly with your survivorhood. One of the most poignant things I've done to help me with healing was a painting that I did earlier this year. I started drawing like versions of myself from the past being held by a version of me now. And that image just kept like evolving and changing and eventually the week of the anniversary of my rape, the five year anniversary, I painted it. And I've got it in my hand now, I'm looking at it. So much healing is done by and with the people around you. My like friends and loved ones and the therapists I've been to see over the years have all done so much to help me. But I think at the end of the day, it's down to me. It's about me being able to be there for myself and me now feeling pain and loss for my past self for that younger version of myself but also being the person who can hold and support and comfort that younger version of myself and it's almost like in healing in this process this like never-ending process of healing it's like being able to show that younger person that I can do it that there is like joy and pleasure to be found in my body and in sex and in connection and trusting people and trusting myself and that's a really scary thing 
to go through. It feels really good to have this painting, which I can hold in my hand and look at. And it represents so many feelings that I've experienced over the years. It feels so like cliched that art is a great healer, but I, I do think that it is. I think it really has helped me. And without this kind of stuff, I wouldn't have been able to like begin to think about healing through sex or having sex and that being a positive experience. You know, the years of like drawing and writing that has been associated to my survivorness kind of, I think, has provided like the foundation for the way that I talk about this and the way that I then can interact with other people. And this painting is a real reminder of that. Andrina also found connecting to her creativity was a way of working through her feelings and continuing on her healing journey. She uses poetry to write honestly about her experiences and in late 2020 published a collection of poems called Chard, which I really recommend. It wasn't until my partner, Jermaine, who I'm with you know, now, suggested that I write about how I feel and I picked up writing seven years ago and then in 2018, there was an International Women's Day event and the theme of the event was protest. And for me, breaking my silence was my protest. So I wrote a poem about the abuse and shared it at that event. And that's the first time I uttered those words to anybody about what happened to me 30 years ago. I'm an expert on my lived experience because I have lived it. I've been 40 years in this body. Like, there's a, that's an achievement in itself. I can't speak on behalf of other people. Like, I can only talk about my journey and my experiences and what's helped me, really. I just wouldn't want anyone to think that I found it easy because it definitely isn't and hasn't been. And it is something that we're, or I am, going to live with for the rest of my life. It's just how, it's how I choose to... To live my life is down to me. Like I choose love, I choose happiness, I choose well-being, and I choose compassion for myself and others. That's what drives me, that's what keeps me going. So as we come to the end of this episode, let's all take a big, deep breath. This has been a really vulnerable thing to make, but I feel very proud that it's out in the world. Thank you for coming along with me, whoever you are, but in particular, if you're a fellow survivor. This is some of the hardest stuff that we will ever face, but none of us are alone. Not me, not you. We are all able to envelop each other in this massive hug where there's space for everything. The mess, the pain, the rage, but also the love, support, and resilience. We're here together. If you've been affected by any of the themes in this podcast, 
please don't forget that resources and helplines can be found in the episode description. Next time on In Touch. When people talk about pleasure, they talk about how important pleasure is. What they don't say is how to pleasure. Sex toys and sexual pleasure is more seen as like quote unquote feminine rather than actually this is just for everybody like you should get to feel good during sex pleasure it doesn't have to be in a screaming orgasm that you think women have the amount of women i know who sex is not about their pleasure at all like it starts there in touch was hosted by me ruby rare it was produced by b duncan with executive producer hannah walker brown the production assistants were rory boyle and mars west This is a Broccoli production.